Hello and welcome to The Native and the Transplant. I'm your native, Alex Johnson. And I'm your transplant, Jen Bryant. Jen, another week, another episode. How are you? Well, I'll tell you what, it has been It has been a week. So <laughs> A little chaotic. Yeah, a little chaotic. I do want to thank our listeners for coming back and listening this week. I apologize that we didn't have a um, an episode out last week that was fresh. Uh, I had multiple family emergencies converge all at the same time. I blame you. You should blame yeah. me. I know. I think I'm a black cloud. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I can't even go into half of it, but to, you know, yeah. we've got mainline issues at the house. We've got kids stuff going on, other family stuff. And it all was like, we couldn't even find a time to even talk. <laughs> it happens, but you're here now. So yeah. and we've got a, an interesting episode. Um, one of the topics or kind of our main topic of discussion for this episode is dealing with the railroad. Um, we've had a couple of contacts that have reached out to us and given us a decent amount of information. These are, are not part, these men are not part of the overall negotiation process that is taking place right now. And they gave us a lot of information as to what is actually happening now, because of their current status, they could not come on the record, but did give us and provided us with an awful lot of resources that we are going to be bringing to you. So, but before we, we dive into that, there's a couple of things happening locally. Uh, one of the things that kind of shocked me right out of the gate up in Wellington. So Wellington, in the past election, they really kind of flipped. Even though the Board of Trustees is supposed to be nonpartisan, it's, you can definitely see how it went from one side to the other. And that was made even more apparent this week as there have been many, many calls for the library to ban books. And the board of trustees said, no, the library is not going to be banning any books. Excellent. So we, we don't have the authority. I forget exactly how they said it. it. It was basically that the board of trustees is not going to be dictating what is a banned book or what is not. Absolutely. I'm thrilled with that decision. Uh, I think one of the first steps towards communism, socialism, fascism, all of those things is censorship of reading materials. Yeah. You know, any of the changes, and we've talked about this, I don't know how many times, but the moment that you start changing what it was, even, even when you have like HBO Max or, or Netflix or any of that stuff that are, that change older episodes, one of the things that I appreciate with some, um, I think it was Disney Plus with some of the older cartoons, um, or it might have been Paramount, I forget exactly which one, but they said, the, the disclaimer that they put up, they said, it's important that you still are able to view these old cartoons and these old uh, sitcoms and that sort of stuff, but understand that it was a different time when this was originally released, but we will release it in its full entirety because it's still valuable information to have. Absolutely. I mean, that'd be like banning 1984. Yep. You know, I mean, the the thing about it is, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could kind of ban it because we're living through it right now. It seems like. Just make some edits. Uh, <laughs> that's not cool. Um, I, I would say though, you know, literature, there are usually reasons why somebody wrote something the way that they did. I mean, if you look up of mice and men, you know, there, I could give you a thousand examples and there's always some sort of historical value to it. There's always some sort of literary lesson and you can kind of read into what they were intending to say. I know one of the big ones, of course, is always the catcher in the rye. Yeah. Have you, I'm sure you've read yeah. the catcher in the rye. I mean, the whole point of that was sort of an individuality thing and how, how dare somebody strike out on their own and kind of do what was against societal norms. 
Yes. And uh, I mean, you always go back to, at least I know in high school I had to read To Kill a Mockingbird. Love that book. I know honestly. most of, most, I guess most graduates my age and your age, uh, had to read that book and now that book is banned. Correct. And you look at that and you go, that's an important story that needs to be heard and needs to be read. You know, so I, I, I can understand the frustration from some parents at some age levels saying that, hey, this uh, this book may be inappropriate for this age level. Correct. But don't ban the entire book. It, it's <laughs> it's time that we kind of take that back. And the other aspect of it is I'm impressed by how many people think that kids read as much as they do. <laughs> right. I was going to say, if we're going to, if we're going to ban anything, we need to talk about websites and, and YouTube channels and that sort of TikTok, stuff. Talk that kind of crap. You know, it's yeah. amazing to me with my daughter, how many times we'd get odd looks when she had a book in front of her instead of a screen. Oh, your daughter reads so much though. Yeah. It's awesome. My kids <laughs> don't, they don't read nearly as much as I would like them to. You know, it's interesting though. I, I kind of brought up the TikTok thing and there's, there's some new information out about TikTok that kind of brings back to what we were talking about with the 87,000 people, the Inflation Reduction Act, these 87,000 IRS agents that are going to yep. be hired and that new technology that they're bringing up. Ironically, it's almost identical to what TikTok is doing anyway. Yeah. I don't know about you, but actually a couple of weeks ago, I went ahead and deleted and removed my TikTok account. And I never posted any content there. I was just looking for cat videos, but um, <laughs> I went ahead and removed that because yeah. to me, that seems like the only reasonable response. Yeah. I, I have TikTok, but it's on a burner phone. Oh, excellent. So at that point in time, it's not going into my contacts. It's not going into anything else. And it's the only thing that I use for that phone because there is an awful lot of good content that is on TikTok. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a lot more than just the dancing and the lip syncing and that sort of stuff where there is some incredible um, followers. There's one gal that she does news from under the desk and she hits news in a different light than most of mainstream media. Yeah. And so there's certain uh, content creators that I follow there and I want to be able to see that content, but I don't have it on my primary phone. Oh, absolutely not. You know, it is pretty interesting too. We are seeing a trend coming from TikTok that um, actually, you know, a lot of crimes are being solved. Yeah. I'm sure you are aware of the very high profile. It's Mama Tot. Um, her yes. name is Ophelia um, from, oh gosh, is she Tennessee or somewhere in the South? I can't remember. Um, but she's been, you know, her content is usually very positive, but her son was murdered. Yeah. They were able to find her son's murderer through the help of a lot of her followers and through the help of the community that said, no, this is not okay. She's a valued member of our community. Yeah. She posts TikTok videos, but she's a valued member and it's not fair that her son doesn't have the justice for his death. You know? So it, it's pretty interesting. I mean, you can look up all kinds of, you can do recipes or thing, you know, hacks and kind of stuff like that. I personally want to watch goat videos. So <laughs> <clears throat> no, I'm, I'm cheesing, but but you're being serious. As oh, well. about the goat videos. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. All right. So let's bring it back to Loveland. So one of the things that has con gone through um, Loveland City Council has been the Draper Project. Now, we talked about this back when there was um, quite a bit of controversy just due to the overall height of the project, where Correct. everything else is about 40 feet and this was going to be 61 feet. So they worked throughout all of that. But the big thing that got greenlit was. Um, the parking structure. Correct. So, and that's something that is really in need. Um, 
in Loveland as far as just adding to the parking? Because you have the main parking structure, which when it opened up, though this is the one at the foundry. Yeah. Um, you could find parking unless it was, you know, a Saturday or, or a Friday nights and there was a big thing going on down there. Then you'd struggle to find a little bit of parking. Recently, on a Tuesday evening, it's difficult to find parking. Yeah, good luck. Yeah. And so they have greenlit the Draper Parking Garage, which that is going to be just north of Dark Heart Coffee. Correct. So there's a parking lot right there, right behind um, behind the Black Steer, yeah. right next to uh, Dark Heart Coffee. That's going to end up being a parking garage. So it's it's. You're giving me a funny look. What's going on? Yeah, we're talking about adding all of these all of these spaces, but from what I understand, it's actually not a lot of public parking. Like there, it was kind of like we're using all this space up, but we're not actually gaining a whole lot of space. So I want to look that up. But there was kind of a it ends up basically tripling the number of parking spots within that parking lot that's currently there. Right, because it's going to go up, correct, rather than out. Of course, because we're not going to find anywhere to go out. <laughs> correct. So. And so the old uh, this is the other part. The old city building off of Sixth. Did you see that they uh, they actually released how much those luxury apartments are going to cost? Um, yeah, seven figures. Yeah, yeah. like over a million <laughs> dollars million for dollars. a luxury apartment that is surrounded by homeless people. <laughs> it's one of those defined irony moments, and I, I understand the developer. I understand the the use of wanting to be able to to put in those apartments, but I think it's only six apartments. That are going in there that are ultra luxury apartments that are all going to be over a million dollars. And you just have to sit there and wonder, do the people that have the money that are going to spend the money to own one of those apartments plus the HOA fee and everything of that sort? Cause you know that there's going to be added fees included when you purchase one of those. Do they actually know about the homeless problem within downtown Loveland? I mean, I guess not. <laughs> Here's what I was talking about, actually. So the Draper Project also includes 96 different residential units in it. Okay. So they actually, on three levels, there's currently 56 parking lot spaces in that area right there, and they're going to triple that. But you are now adding 96 different family units, and maybe a single, you know, couple or one child or whatever, because they're going to be pretty small. But you're now adding 96 different units that are going to park in there. Yes, but I think they're going to do the exact same thing they did at the foundry, okay. where you have the private, you have the public parking, which is um, on main level and above, and then you have private parking underneath. Right. So if they dig it out to basically two underground levels, then you can see where that's going to accommodate the the additional parking. Because they had talked that it's going to be basically five stories, but I believe that two of those stories are going to be, or one of those stories is going to be underground. Yeah, so it looks like 277 spaces total, 115 are additional. So 115, I mean, that's not too bad. Yeah. It's kind of a cool looking structure though. We talked about it before. I don't think yeah. it looks bad. I it'll, mean, it'll definitely add to downtown. And so I know that's one, one of the things that they've been working on for years and years. And even when we had John Mark, John Mark sits on the downtown, uh, development mm -hmm. board. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that they have been doing quite a bit of work to try and just improve and really make downtown. Cause we even talked about the old, um, the Elks Lodge. 
Yeah. Where that's going to be a, a concert venue. Well, I can't wait for that one. It's <laughs> so cool. it's, it's interesting to see how overall Loveland downtown is improving, but this is where it's kind of the, yes, everything's improving, but then we have added homeless <laughs> and it's just an interesting situation to, to really dive into in Loveland. And it's going to be something that we're going to be talking about for months and probably years to come, uh, just because it's a constant development. Well, and you get this kind of growth and this many people coming into the state, it, it's bound to happen. It's just, we, we're going to have to figure out a way to meet that need. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, hey, by the way, just a happy anniversary to John Mark and his wife. Yeah. By the way, do you see that today? <laughs> I did. Always love talking to that guy. So, and if you haven't seen uh, or listened to that episode, that was two episodes ago. Definitely worth listening to. He's uh, John Mark has a wealth of information. Oh yeah, just I really enjoy when he comes on. So, so but and a quick PSA. One of the things that has been going around is the increase of West Nile virus. West yeah. Nile virus within mosquitoes, and I know multiple towns. I know it came in front of the the birth at board of trustees as far as overall mitigation what are we going to do as far as spraying all of that and that is up and down um the front range corridor in northern colorado so you know grab some deet especially if you're as the weather's starting to cool a little bit um make sure that you're protecting yourself a little bit absolutely because i have personally seen an increase in that as well so i mean truly yeah all right well let's let's oh. dive into it because for one aspect, the part that's frustrating is not many people within the mainstream are actually even talking about this. Correct. Or diving in deep enough to let people know how we got to this point. Right. And it's a pretty complicated situation. There this are, is not, there yeah. are 16 markers. And what we're talking about is the railroad. And the fact that the railroad is looking at striking come 1201 on Friday morning. Correct. We are on the Wednesday. 16th. Yep. It's Wednesday the 14th. So yeah. less than 48 hours. So if you listen to this on the weekends, then you're probably already hearing what's, what's coming out of this. Um, but there are 16 markers that have to be hit before conductors and engineers are allowed to strike. That process has taken years mm -hmm. to get to this point. And one of the, the frustrations with this is overall negotiation um, on railroad contracts is supposed to take place every three years. Well, that fell right during COVID. And when COVID hit, negotiations stopped. They said, hey, we're in a um, national pandemic. Yeah. We're dealing with all of this, these executive orders. We do not have to come to the negotiation table right now. Just keep working. Right. And so it has been five years since they've had a new contract negotiated. And in that time, many, many things have changed. Correct. And so even one of the, the aspects, so you have uh, BNSF. So, and again, that's Warren Buffett owns BNSF, which has had record profits for the last few years, yep. but they changed how they changed how a conductor and an engineer are basic, how their time is set up and when they are on call and how they're able to call off or when they have to work. It used to be on the prior system that you were able every single month, you had five weekdays and two weekend days that you were able to call off. Mm -hmm. And then you could lay off, a certain number of times without getting marks against you. Yeah. Well, they have gone to a point-based system 
which a point-based system really doesn't guarantee you any time off. And most of the guys are now at about 90% on call annually. Correct. Yeah. Well, and, and the laying off piece of that, that's if, you know, you have a family emergency or you're sick or maybe things just didn't go, you didn't sleep. And so you're dangerous to be driving a train um, or eh, just whatever you have a social event you want to go to. I mean, they should be able to have a life, but what's important to note is that they have to work like eight hour shifts. There's, there's only, they can only work for eight hours and that is a federal mandate because of the safety issue. And so if they know that they're not going to be able to safely do that, sometimes they will lay off because they know it's going to be problematic. Um, the other thing that's in- interesting about this point system is um, some of the people we talked to actually said that there's really no way to start racking up points so that you can take time off. Yeah. And they do that with the way that it's set up is that if you take off a Friday, Saturday, or a Sunday, they can charge you up to seven points for, for laying off that day. Yeah. Depending on the point value of that day. So a weekends are double, if not triple the points as say a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And so it can take for seven points, for example, it can take them nearly a month to recoup those seven points, which means that you're on call for a month before you can take another day off. And we're talking 24 hours a day. So your life is on hold so you can be on call. Correct. So with some of this stuff, it's also the little bit of mainstream that has actually talked about this potential strike. They're blaming more the unions and the conductors and the engineers than they're blaming the railroads themselves. So there's seven main railroads within this nation. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the stuff that they're asking for in these, in these negotiations is 15 days of unpaid. I'll repeat that unpaid sick leave. Just let me take the time off. Cause I got to, I don't care if I'm paid. Correct. So at that point in time, it's to be able to say, Hey, without using a point, without doing any of this stuff, if I have my kid that gets sick, or if I, you know, somebody's in the hospital or if I get sick, you know, any of that stuff happens, then at that point in time, they want 15 days annually that they can be able to lay off without pay, without question. I would assume that something like uh, quarantining for COVID would fall under that category there of the 15 days. Yeah, and the railroad was some of the worst companies as far as any sort of of COVID um, mitigation or not mitigation. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, prevention. Prevention. Or, yeah, pre- prevention of spreading it. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, and they, they run pretty tight crews. But if you had one guy in a crew go down, okay, so your crew now, you have been exposed. You have to quarantine because it's probable that you're going to get sick in a couple of days. And you have to take that time off to quarantine. And then you get sick. Okay, that's unpaid. Yeah. And the problem with that is, is that that essentially just says, well, yeah, we don't really care if you get it. Just don't give it to somebody else. Yeah. You know? So keep in mind that throughout all of this, through the last five years that they haven't been in the negotiation table, and as they're going through the process of negotiation right now, that all of the railroads have laid off close to half of their people in the last five years. Well, I do want to speak to that just a little bit. So there's a couple of reasons that they're laying people off. First of all, they do this thing called a furlough. All right. We all know what a furlough is from over COVID where we had to furlough for a short amount of time because they just didn't have the money to pay 
there, we, you know, it was like, well, we don't have any business. That's not the case with the railroads. I want to point that out real quick because Burlington, Northern Santa Fe took over $23 billion in, in profit last year. $23 billion. Okay. So if you furloughed, you were doing that without pay, maybe apply for, um, you know, your unemployment, but yeah. I don't know about you. I never got mine. Um, I did furlough, but I took a huge loss on it. Yeah. Okay. So these guys then are saying, well, we're going to furlough you because we don't have enough work for you or we can't pay you. So you still have your job. It's protected and you can come back to your job, but we're not going to pay you for any of this. Okay. So they, that's the first thing that they've done. And they've done a lot of that in the last five years, but their entire point of laying these people off was actually to force something that as soon as Warren Buffett took ownership of BNSF became a really big issue. They want to run one person conductor crews when traditionally and honestly safely you're running a two person crew. Yeah. Number one, if something happens, if there's an accident with the trains, if there's some sort of backup, if there's problems with the track, et cetera, then you have a backup so that that eight hour stretch you're driving, you can go and rest and take your time off to sleep. You're still on a train, but you can take your time off to sleep and the other person takes that over so they can run them faster and more efficiently. So they started furloughing people so that they could force a one-person crew. Which the other the other part of this is as they're trying to force one-person crews, the trains are getting longer and longer. Where now it's pretty regular up and down the front range that we are seeing three-mile, four-mile, and five-mile long trains. Yep, those are the super trains. Yeah. Yes. So what they would really like to do is they would like to actually take it down to no conductors and have these automatic trains driving these huge super trains across the country. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen a train accident? Not in person. Okay. So I've seen the aftermath. I have family members that worked for the railroad for, I mean, my grandfather retired after 55 years of service to Burlington Northern. So they're a hot mess. They're a hot mess and people get killed and they're very, very heavy. Just the front train, the conduction train. The is, engine. Yeah, the engine. I couldn't think of the word right there. I can, I can think of the, I don't know, I, it apparently fell out of my head. But um, just the engine is massive. You are not going to stop a train that is five miles long and going even at 30 miles an hour. It takes five miles for that to stop. If there is nobody in place to recognize that they have to stop that train because maybe there's some sort of disaster in front of them a flood, a fire, and anything that would affect the tracks, you are going to have a derailment. We have these crews in place, I mean, 100% for safety. You cannot tell me, and this is like self-driving cars. No. This is a very bad idea in a lot of instances. You cannot tell me that that's a safer way to operate it. But the railroad said, well, you know what? We really want to be one-person crews because we don't want to pay for two people to be on that engine. So they really pushed this whole thing. They started laying people off because they don't want to pay anybody. I mean, I get, you know, save money and find ways to cut costs because, of course, we're living in a very expensive economy. But we're talking about if you boil it right down to that, that is 100% safety. Yeah. Well, and some of the other stuff that has happened is all of the railroads have increased their overall prices for moving cargo. Correct. And significantly amount as well. But one of the other things that they have done, this is a gentleman was talking to me about this, is that they're now saying that you basically work on my timeline, 
from the railroad timeline. And if you want anything expedited, say you want your rail car moved three days early, then they're tripling the price. Correct. And people are just having to pay it because they're, they want their goods. But right. you make mention of the overall what happens during a train wreck. It, the markings on the side of all of these rail cars, cars, especially mm-hmm. the tanker cars, a lot of people don't realize how deadly some of the materials are that they're moving constantly up and down the front range through the middle of Fort Collins downtown. Mm-hmm. They have molten sulfur on a regular basis that is going through there. <laughs> if these trains wreck, not only is it an awful lot of metal, but you have some very highly combustible materials that are sitting on these trains. Right. Well, and it should be noted that the railways actually have a lot of things in place to prevent things like derailments and accidents. Um, there are crews that go out there with an engine and basically an engine, and they're pulling one car full of guys who are running all this diagnostic on those tracks to make sure that they don't need to be repaired. But if we're going to that level and saying it is this dangerous, because there are a lot of dangerous materials on them, I concur. If we're saying that, and we need to have these crews that are running like that, then tell me why it is even an option to consider running a super train with no crew. Yeah. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Yeah. So let's dive into (laughs) what they're actually asking for. A lot of what they're asking for is, uh, and this is also the point of frustration where you have the unions which are coming to the table. Now, there's 12 main unions, nine of which have come to some sort of an agreement, but the other three unions that haven't are the really the conductors and the engineers, the people that are actually running the trains on a daily basis. Those unions have not come to an agreement because, again, they're the ones that are saying, hey, we want a cost of living increase. Which is reasonable. We want a an increase to um, outpace inflation. We want better scheduling. Those are all reasonable requests. Those that's what what they're asking for, and the frustration, and with multiple people that we have spoken with on this topic that understand exactly what's going on. Um, the unions keep on coming to the table and the railroads do not. Correct. And it should be noted that um, some of our sources were saying, you know, not everybody wants to strike. It's not something that people don't want to do that. They want to do their jobs. They want to make an income for their family and they want to keep our infrastructure going. Okay. But it's not everybody that wants to do that. However, the people that are looking at striking and I found a couple of different sources for this, um, but we're talking 40 to 50% of conductors. Yes. These are the people that still work for them. Not even the ones that they've fired or laid off or, you know, let go of over the last five years. Which, and at that point in time, even some of the people that they have fired and specifically fired over the last three years have been fired outside of what is set up within the union, basically fired illegally. And so that's another aspect of it. But going back, so when you hear mainstream and, and it pissed me off, CNN and MSNBC spoke about it for about two and a half minutes is all the coverage I've found on it. And they've been blaming the conductors and basically saying the conductors and the engineers are greedy. 
and the union is greedy. And with some cases, I can understand unions doing that. UAW is an awful union. That's the United Auto Workers. Horrible union. And because they truly are in it for their own profit and not for the profit of any company and they don't want to work together. That is not the case with these unions. Not at all. I mean, the railway union, they, they are usually pretty well organized. They have very strict rules. You, I mean, they're not going to accept you in to the union and you're not going to work for a railroad if you don't adhere to their stuff. And, and they really are very, very strict. I actually know several people that have been union representatives and they will tell you that it, they are working for them and that they really are trying to maintain their dignity as workers. And the stuff that they are asking for is stuff that all of us have on a normal daily, daily basis. Yeah. You know, a a little bit of work-life balance, which they do not have right now. Based off of this point system, they do not have it. And it's very, very easy to essentially mess up or... What's the proper term that I'm looking for? It's very, very easy to be put into a position where you can be fired on a regular basis just because of the point system. Right. I mean, that actually works in the railway's favor, though, because they're trying to reduce their numbers of people that they have on their payroll because they don't want to run two-person crews. Yeah. So interestingly enough, too, um, one of the things that's particularly important to note here is that in these negotiations, the railways are not coming back with anything that's even remotely reasonable as a solution. They're stalemating. Correct. And the thought process behind the stalemate from the railroads is that come 1201 on September 16th, when they're allowed to go on strike, that there will be an act of Congress forcing them to go back to work. Right. And this creates many, many other issues. Because if that were to happen, now I've seen it compared quite a bit to the FAA um, with the air traffic controllers. With the FAA and why they aren't allowed to strike is because it is a government entity. There is a difference between a a private citizen and a private company that you aren't allowing to strike versus a government entity that you aren't allowing to strike. Right, because this is these are private ent- entities that they could come to the table with some reasonable negotiations and say, "Hey, you know, we understand this is a hard life to live, and we need to find some ways to make this more reasonable for you." I mean, it, you know, the, the the problem is is that the government knows that they can't let the railroad shut down. They know that they can't because, of course, we kind of talked about the impact, but major major impact on the entire country massive within four days the the coast won't have milk um you look at especially during harvest we're at the end coming up towards the end of harvest being able to move all the grain from really middle america out to the coast the overall impact in this is going to be noticed within really within hours if not days of them striking. Now, the part that is worrisome is yes, you can have Congress come back and put in a motion and say, no, you can't strike. And the railroads can then come and say, okay, Congress put in this motion. You're not allowed to strike anymore. You have to get back to work. The problem with that is the fact that you have, I forget the exact percentage. I think it's 60% of conductors and engineers that have less than 15 years in with the company. Correct. And so at that point in time, we aren't talking about them not striking and just going back to work. We're talking about potentially over half 
over half of the railroad uh, conductors and engineers quitting their jobs and walking off. Yeah, not striking until negotiations are done, leaving 100%. So, and at that point in time, that is far worse than a 12-hour or a 24-hour or a 48-hour strike. Is Because if you lose half, you lose half the people that are running these trains that aren't coming back because do you think the railroads are going to pay for them to come back? Absolutely not. No. So I do want to point out a couple of things. There was a senator that basically, or not a senator, I think it was one of the lead guys in the in the railways that actually came on. I, I can't remember what his name was, but he came on and said, you know, so we're paying these people really, really good money to do these jobs. Their jobs are starting at $150,000 a year. Lies. Absolute 100% lies. If you go on any of these major, the top seven, how many are there? 22. Um, but the top seven that you could get hired on as a conductor or an engineer, there's yet yeah, the seven. So, um, they actually have their starting pay as a conductor or an engineer at $65,000. That's not even a livable wage given that they are on call all the time. Now I'm going to make a parallel here. Okay. Um, I've done on call work as a nurse and, and that sometimes is necessary in, in, the nursing profession, I suppose. Um, and normally you would receive a three or $4 an hour while you're on call. And you would take a call knowing that pretty much for the entire weekend, if something happened, especially like in the OR, there's a major trauma and we got to call in the trauma surgeon and his team. You're going to get there and you're going to get paid time and a half. Okay? Even if I work five hours, it's going to be worth it to me. I don't care about the three or $4 an hour I'm being paid to be on call, but I'm going to make a little bit of money and it's worth the effort for me. All right. These guys are not paid to essentially be on call 24 hours a day. They cannot lay off. The point system works against them intentionally. It's it's called high-vis, and it's used specifically to work against them so that they pretty much are at the behest of the railroad. When we want you to work, you're going to come in and you're going to work. And by the way, you're not allowed to balk at any of this. You know, one of the main things they were asking for was actually a 40% raise essentially wage increase over five years. Cost of living alone, we all know that if you took anything less than an 8% raise this year, you actually lost money and you were essentially, you're essentially paying to work for the people you work for. Okay. A lot of people didn't do that, but with the cost of living, and then you look at the inflation rate now, that's even worse. Yeah. 40% over five years is really not that ridiculous. If you think about it, you should be making consistent raises as you become higher ranking in your company and as your skill set goes higher, this is a very unique skill set. Yes, somebody can be taught to do this, but you just like you said, 60% of those conductors and engineers have less than 15 years on the job. So let me um, break in here real quick because yeah. of the importance of that. Mm-hmm. Why we're talking about less than 15% uh, or less than 15 years of time on service is dealing with the overall pension. It's Correct. because of once you get to about 30 years, then your railroad pension is far better of a, of a retirement than Social Security. For at sure. A, at about 20 to 25 years, some year in there, it ends up matching. But below that, it is better to go find another career and pay into Social Security because you'll end up having more retirement via Social Security. So if you are only five years in, and you have 25 years left to work for the company that's actively trying to fire you on a daily basis and aren't willing to come to the table to make it a livable job 
of just being able to schedule a doctor's appointment. Right. Then at this point in time, those, those guys that are, have only been there five years or 10 years, if all of a sudden Congress mandates that they go back to work, it's far easier for them just to say, you know what? I'm done working for the railroad, wash my hands and walk away. 100% agree. I do want to speak to the pension just a little bit. Yep. So one of the things that when you retire from the railroad, you do receive a pension and it's, you know, that's something that the union has negotiated. And the reason that that pension is in place is for several reasons. First of all, it mitigates the issue of social security. So you work for the railroad for 50 years, social security is not that great. You've got your pension and, and you can actually retire. This is backbreaking work. I mean, very seriously. I don't care if you're sitting in a tower or if you're actually a switchman moving lines or if you're conducting, you're an engineer on a train or if you're one of those guys that loads things up in, in the yard. doesn't matter. It is hard, hard work. It's very dangerous. It is very high risk and it's always dangerous and high risk. There is always the potential for something to happen. Much like air traffic control, there's something going on on those railways at all times and people need to know about what's going on very, very dangerous work. You get to be 55, 60 years old and now your body's darn tired and you should be rewarded with a pension for that so that you can retire peacefully. However, when you retire, say if you have another skill, um, software engineering or something that you're really, really good at and you decide to work after that, you are not paid your full pension until you are literally bringing no other income in. In fact, if you were to pull from your spouse's retirement fund, they will tax you or take that out of your monthly pension and will not give you that money. So there, it is very convoluted. It's very convoluted and, and very much so on the level that, you know, I understand that the railways have to make money and that it's got to be profitable for them as well, but they are doing it to the detriment of their employees. Very much so. And at that point in time, you have to also ask as far as, and this is where I, I have some self-conflict because yes, an ideal capitalist society, Hey, you know what the price is, is the price that somebody's willing to pay for it and that sort of stuff and being able to maximize profits. But at some point in time, you have to look at it and say, okay, what is these maximizing of profits? I mean, the rail system in the United States makes over a hundred billion dollars a year mm-hmm. in profit. At what point in time are we looking at it and do you say, hey, (laughs) you need to prioritize people over the profit. So you guys only make $60 billion a year, but now you actually have a work-life balance and you have these crews that are able to actually spend time with their families. Many of them say, and almost every single guy that I talked to about this issue, they said it is essentially – a, a single man's job where if you have a family, you have kids, the, the likelihood that you'll be divorced, the likelihood that you'll lose your family is pretty darn high because of how they are set up and how the overall system and how it's being ran right now, they don't care about you. Right. They care about the profit. They care about making sure that each train is going down the tracks. 
Right. So there is a bill that was introduced um, by Senators Richard Burr, um, Republican from North Carolina, and Roger Wicker, a Republican from Mississippi. Um, it's called PEB 250. And the intention of that bill, it was actually um, put out in August when this sort of started coming to light that there was going to be an issue um, to prevent a rail worker strike. So in that bill, they actually said, well, 40 percent is a lot, but we'll give you 22 percent. And actually, the rail workers and the union said, that's great. If we can get that in writing and we can do that over the next five years, that's better than we were hoping for because the railways were saying uh, best we can do is 11%. Okay. So, right. Yeah, it doesn't even match inflation of this year. Right. They were asking for one additional – and th- this law said that they would give them one additional day of paid leave, um, a continu- continuation of existing health and welfare plan. So the railroads traditionally have very good health insurance. But they are the, – the railways say, well, it's become too expensive. We're going to go ahead and charge you double now. Double. Yeah. Health insurance is already darn expensive. And if you have good health insurance, it's an incredibly valuable asset. When you have people working in high-risk jobs like this, they need to have good quality access to high-quality health care because they are going to require access to this. It is an incredibly stressful job. So what happens to your body in a stressful job, right? <laughs> I mean, let's – cancer and all kinds of stuff, you know, back injuries and that type of thing, okay? So they basically said, hey, look, we want a pay increase. We want our benefits to be more reasonable. Oh, and hey, by the way, we liked the rules that we were using for laying off, how we were charging for our expenses, uh, the times that we can be on the trains, two-man crews. We don't want to get rid of any of that because we feel like it really has value to our job satisfaction and to the safety of the public. Unions said, guys, that's all we're asking for. And the railroads went, and eh, no. No, we're not going to do that. Yeah, and the railroads have stopped because they're. This is where you look at it, and you know, kind of put on your PR uh, cap. And mainstream media is really backing the railroads. They've already, in the two and a half minutes that they've actually talked about it, they are spinning it to this is the unions' problem. This is not the railroads' problem. They're the unions failing to negotiate, and the railroads are doing everything on the up and up. Right. Nothing could be further from the truth. That you're 100% right on that. And so what the railroads are anticipating and their, their fingers are crossed that will happen is that the strike will move forward and there will be an act of Congress to put these guys back to work. And then at that point in time, the railroad can come out with their PR team and say, Oh, the union's trying to shut down America. The unions are trying to do all of this stuff. How bad are the unions? Which is ironic with the fact that we have a Democrat administration. Yeah. Which has always been more pro union. So looking oh, yeah. at this dynamic that's happening because of this issue has been fascinating, but also understanding exactly what can occur if all of this goes in as as I laid out and Congress says puts mm-hmm. their foot down and says you cannot strike and you have half the the workforce walk off the job and quit. I mean we're talking 90 So overall, we're talking 90, I've heard anywhere from 90 to 115,000 people that have the potential of striking. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about losing 40 to 50,000 people that just walk off the job, these aren't jobs that you can just make up that loss overnight. This is something that will shut down America and cause, if you think gas prices and you think food prices and everything are expensive right now, if this goes forward... 
and we lose half of our conductors and half of our engineers. And it, they basically stop overall rail travel. Everything is going to go through the roof. Catastrophic implications. So it's interesting because one of the newest things, um, I'm actually quoting some stuff from railwayage.com, um, which is a great site that kind of breaks down what's happening. We've got several sources that I'll list as we use them. Um, but they're the American short line and regional railroad association president, Chuck Baker sent a letter to congressional leadership and basically said they need to step in and force these rail workers to continue to work because it will be quote, a crucial the US freight rail network is a crucial component of the global supply chain adding that it is imperative congress act to avoid severe and unnecessary national economic calamity so here's what i'm taking from that and i want you to weigh on this alex yeah basically like what i was saying earlier was look the the government is going to always side on the side of the railways because they want to keep these things going, moving, everything moving across the country. So they're going to do whatever they can. They don't really care what happens in negotiations. They just don't want this shutdown to happen. So they're always going to side with the railways. What that means though, is that these workers are 100% done with this cooling down time period, right? It's, there's a cooling down time period because they're like, we got to cool down. Let's just, we'll come back to the table and talk in a little bit. And that's what happens at 1201 on Friday morning. Um, but I mean, as complicated as all this is, they, they really are basically pushing for this to happen so that they can force their workers to do it. And you have to come to some sort of agreement. Now that agreement is never going to go in favor of the rail workers. Correct. And one of the things that they're talking about as well is if that happens and they force an agreement between the unions and the railroads. So some of the the stuff that they're talking about is overall back pay. Again, they haven't had a raise in three years. They haven't had any negotiations in three years. This has been a five-year problem that is coming to, to its end, you know, at at 12.01 on Friday morning on the 16th. I apologize. I lost my train of thought. Um, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't punch. No, but looking at um, the amount of people that can... I remember where I was. We're talking about back pay. Yeah. So there is the other part of this negotiation that is back pay. So it's essentially a prorated for back to, for the last two years of where they did not have a new contract for these guys to be paid out. And so if that is, and that should be within any contract that's signed from the unions to the rail, uh, to the railroads, that opens up a window of about three to four weeks after that's the new contract is signed that you have guys that will wait for their back pay before they then quit. You're darn right. So there's the other aspect of this where if everything kind of has goes on as, as I've laid out, then also we have to look at what happens about a month, month and a half after the contract has been signed and what happens after the, these uh, rail workers get their back pay. And if they start to quit in mass at that point in time, we're in the exact same boat as if they go on strike and stay on strike. Absolutely. And it is estimated that a railway shutdown will cost over $2 billion a day. 
a day. So what confuses me about this is how these railways are getting away with essentially forcing, they've been negotiating for two years. This is two years of negotiations that they cannot come to the table and make a reasonable negotiation to ensure that this doesn't happen. At some point, this has to be put on the hands of the railways. Yeah. You can't put this on the, on the hands of the rail workers. They're, they're just trying to make a livable wage. So, and this will affect each and every one of us. And a lot of people are wondering, you know, we do news in Northern Colorado. Why are we talking about this? Vestas. Yeah. Over in Windsor, they ship in all of their products, all of their materials to make their wind turbines. And then they ship out all of their wind turbines on rail. Yep. Vestas shuts down. If this happens. Oh, 100%. I mean, there's been portions where Vestas is shutting down because the trains are running late and they don't have enough supplies to make them. So now we can't make them. We can't get it out. Correct. You have all of the farming that's taking place. You have all of the oil. Weld County, huge for oil and gas. And even at that huge. point in time, if you have rail, uh, the railroads shut down, it's shutting down multiple other industries. And this is a domino effect that will take years to recover from. If you think that one day of air traffic being shut down on September 11th made a massive impact on the country, imagine the trains down for 24 hours. Yeah. I mean, that, that, you know, most of the time, yeah, people travel for work and things like that. Incidentally enough, though, um, several railways that have passenger trains are actually canceling all of their tickets. And you, and that's an interesting thing that you bring that up because that is against the overall contract Mm -hmm. that the railways have with the unions right now. So they are, it's not just canceling, uh, potential, um, Affairs and that sort of stuff, but they're, the rail, uh, railroads are already actively letting people know, hey, there's probably going to be an issue. Let's adjust timelines, adjust all of this, which goes directly against the contract that they are currently under. But I, I wonder yeah. who, who are the lawyers that are going to, to rise up and start suing the hell out of these rail, uh, railroads to make sure that, hey, you guys did this to us. You guys did this to everybody. Your greed did this to America. And now you want to be the ones that are going to sit there and just continue to make profits off of this? Right. And actually, that leads me into a direct quote from uh, Jeremy Ferguson, who is the president of Smart Transportation Division. He's been heavily involved in all of these negotiations. Um, and he uh, basically said, the railroads are using shippers, consumers, and the supply chain of our nation as pawns in an effort to get our unions to cave into their contract demands, knowing that our members would never accept them. So they are intentionally forcing this to happen. Now, keep in mind that even if the rail workers don't strike, they don't walk out, these railways can lock them out and not let them do their jobs because they refuse to meet the, quote, unreasonable demands. And I say that with a lot of sarcasm because they're not unreasonable demands. And as a matter of fact, two years ago, these weren't demands. They were requests of, we got to look at this and figure out a better way for this to happen. So they are 100% using that against those workers and it's intentional. And I 100% agree. You know, the heads of these railways need to be sitting there explaining why they are not allowing these things to happen. And I know there's negotiations between them and the union, but come on. 
Yeah, frankly, at this point in time, the fact that we're spending uh, over $100 billion in Ukraine, the fact that we have the January 6th commission, and the fact that our Congress is refusing to call these CEOs in front of Congress to say, mm-hmm. explain yourself. If Congress wants to end the strike, they're in this strike, if they go to strike and, and mm-hmm. everything's pointing that they will go to strike. Yes. Everything at this point in time, we're 48 hours away. Everything's looking like this will happen, that this will strike. Yeah, nobody's raising white flags. Which at that point in time, again, the fact that so many people are, it mums the word as far as media is concerned, Mm -hmm. should concern you as well. And look at the amount of propaganda that's being pushed right now. But Congress, before they ever end a strike, should call all of these CEOs and say, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you get to the negotiation table? This is on you. This isn't on the union. No, I concur wholeheartedly because, I mean, and, you know, obviously we can talk about how much people are making. We can talk about the rules. We can talk about all of those things. But they are forcing the hand intentionally because they want to get their way. No. And it's all about profit. And we aren't saying any of this to scare you. We want no. our goal with this and bringing up and talking about this and the fact of how much research we've done in the last two weeks to get this information to you and to truly talk about the talk to these guys that are making this decision. You know, they're being forced to, to make this decision. Yeah. And it's to let you know what's actually going on because our news our media outlets are failing the American people right now. Day in, day out, they are failing the American people. And so it's little podcasts like this that have to try and get some of this information out and understand that it will have a massive effect here in Northern Colorado. You may not think about it. You may just get your, be annoyed for the 10 minutes or 15 minutes you have to wait for a train to pass. But this is truly a situation where if this plays out the way that I think it will, is going to have repercussions into the months and years ahead. Okay, so I do want to make an interesting – I just want to point something out here. So at $15 an hour, a low-level worker makes about $31,000 a year. Yeah. So that means that at base pay, we are paying conductors and engineers $30 an hour. Yeah. Okay. I don't get out of bed for less than that because it's not going to feed my family and I'm not going to exert something towards that. I'm a skilled worker. However, a lot of these guys that come in may not be a skilled worker in your traditional sense. They probably have a lot of other skills they bring to the table. Yeah, electrical work or welding or construction, those kinds of things. But they're willing to go into this position because they need to feed their families. But because they take that position does not make them a martyr. It does not. That does not mean that they have to sacrifice their lives, make low-level pay, have terrible health care, and work at a job that is so unreasonable and is constantly trying to fire you. That's, I mean, yeah. we really should be thinking about these workers, and people should be really angry. And like you said, it's not to scare people, but you need to be angry that this is what's happening. And then also take into account that come Friday, Friday is when you're going to hear this from the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. Friday is when they are going to go full bore as to everything that's going on. Understand that it is the railroads themselves that stonewalled these negotiations. Mm -hmm. It is the railroads to blame. It is not the union to blame. And I can tell you from somebody who is on occasion anti-union, the unions right now, the three main national unions that have not, have not, um, signed on the dotted line for a new deal 
they're standing by their people. They are doing the right thing. The people are doing the right thing in this situation. And you need to understand that if there is, whether it's CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, any of those that start pushing the blame onto the union, understand that that is false. Correct. Understand that that's propaganda and understand that they are trying to redirect your viewpoint away from the railroads that have caused this entire problem in the first place. Well, and I've said it before, these are rich people who do not care about the livelihood of the American people. They care about their bottom line. And they won't be affected. It's not going to affect them. It'll affect us. You Supply chain, all of that stuff, you take Warren Buffett, who's worth $100 billion, it's not going to affect him. Not at all. It's not going to affect the CEOs. It's not going to affect the higher-ups with this shutdown. But it will affect every single average American across the entire United States. Right. And unfortunately, I don't know that there's a lot of solutions other than them being called to task. Yep. And so I hope Congress does that. So, <laughs> so again, as, as always, uh, with the upcoming election, I mean, we're less than 60 days away from, uh, the midterms, mm -hmm. vote everyone out. All of them. Every single person that is sitting in office right now has caused these issues, has caused these problems. Vote every single one of them out. That's the only thing that I can tell you is because at that point in time, if we can make it so there are less than 10 incumbents in Congress and, uh, and a, you know, one or two senator incumbents, because there's, I think, 33 of them up for election this year. At that point in time, that's how we, the people, can actually have a voice and take our control back. Vote everyone out. Right. I mean, there at some point, we're going to have to stand up and say this is enough. And the old boys club is not going to... It's not going to fly anymore. But, you know, not just male, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that, that sort of, it's the good old boys. That's what we've always done. Yeah, we're done with that. Yeah. So hopefully this was some, some valuable information for you. And we will be talking about this next week as far as what the fallout is. Because again, everything that we're looking at right now with strike will take place at 1201 on the 16th. And we will see what comes of it. Okay, and I do want to get some sources in here if anybody yep. wants to look this up on, on their own. Uh, first one is smart-union.org, and they've got information in the transportation news. They're going to be right up on letting everybody know what's happening with negotiations and all of that. Next piece um, is railwayage.com. They've got some great information on breaking down everything and where negotiations are failing. Uh, MontanaFreePress.org is talking about how this is going to impact the northern half of our state and how railways move through there and, uh, again, the impact and the financial burden that this could possibly create. Um, BLET.org uh, reports out heavily on the unions. And then um, BLET104.org is another area of the country. So they have some very good information on this. Um, and, and just again, to reiterate the, the sources that we have for this are not connected in any way to negotiations and have knowledge about it because of past experiences and all kinds of things. But, um, we don't want to, we're not naming anybody because we don't want to jeopardize their career. Correct. Some of them don't even work for the railways. Anymore. Anymore. Or they have, yeah. Okay. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, well, as always, I'm your native, Alex Johnson. And I'm your transplant, Jen Bryant. We'll see you next week. Take care.